Hello, and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of December 12th. I'm Jeff Foster. I'm the sports editor here at 538. I'm filling in for our usual host, Neil Payne, who is on vacation. But I got my normal podcasters here. Kyle Wagner's with me in the studio. How you doing, Kyle? I'm sick. It's good. All right. He's sick. Neil's gone. Chris Herring's here. He's not in Chicago. He's in Connecticut. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. I miss Neil, but I, I, I guess I'll settle for you. Neil? You already you, Neil? I've been doing this for 30 seconds. I, I, I still miss Neil, but I'll, I'll settle for Jeff. Neil's in Disney World, folks. He's right now on Big Thunder Mountain, so he can't talk about the NBA. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about the exiled players for the Oklahoma City Thunder, who seem to be doing great for their new teams, the ones who they gave up in the trades for Paul George and Carmelo Anthony. We'll also do our small sample segment on the Minnesota Timberwolves and their new ability to win close games. But first, we're going to start with the headlines, and we're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors, who it it seems to me it's kind of funny. Like, the narrative of this season is focused on the Celtics. We've talked about the Cavs, the Rockets, the Thunder. Even teams like the Sixers have emerged, and the, the Warriors have kind of been an afterthought. Um, I think part of this is their doing They've looked disengaged. Uh, they've been getting into trouble, ejected from games. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, they were going on a road trip. They were coming off a loss to the Kings. Uh, they lost that game without Durant or Curry, and they, they basically had these six games on the road. They won them all, becoming the 11th team in NBA history to sweep a six-game road trip. They were back home Monday. They beat the Trailblazers, and they did that without Draymond and two other starters, including Curry, who's out for a couple weeks. Guys, talk to me about this team. It seems like they just needed a little adversity to sort of kickstart their season. Um, Or is it that we just were bored of talking about the Golden State Warriors and we needed something to happen, um, see a different look from them? I think that they they kind of get a – a jolt from the idea of their main guys being able to play on their own for a little bit. Uh, Kyle and I were, were so kind of impressed by Curry last year in the finals, just seeing him be able to do what he was doing. He had that one game where he just kind of snapped and, and just played out of his mind. And it's crazy that it hasn't really been that long since he won the two MVP awards, but it's so cool to watch him in his element and to just kind of be the man and he gets to do that when Durant was hurt. So obviously a couple weeks ago he got to do that. He had the basically that 30-point quarter against the Bulls, and it looked like the old Curry. Not the old Curry because it's not even that long ago, but the, the Curry that we saw play at his absolute best. Now Curry's out, and Durant, you look at his numbers, I think the three games that Curry's been out so far, 33, 10, and 7, and he's averaging three and a half blocks on top of that. And so now it's kind of Durant putting up these numbers that we saw from Russ and and Harden and these sorts of guys and, and just being able to kind of do it on his own. And I think they like to be able to remind people that they can do that. They don't have to do it because they play on a team where three or four different guys can carry the load collectively. But I do think that there is some element of it that for, as far as offense is concerned that they like to be able to show what they can do. So like the one thing about Curry being out is that you don't get the the full Warriors experience. So, like, yeah, we're a little tired of like, talking about all them. And, like, we get to see them with Durant now, you know, leading the show. And, like, that's interesting. Like, Zach Lowe wrote a good piece last week um, just, like, going over, like, all the basic things that, like, we'll be able to find out. But the thing that, like, separates the Warriors from a, like, any other, like, extremely good team that, like, it's just kind of boring to watch them crush the rest of the league 
was Steph Curry, was him doing things like changing the parameters of the game in a way that like, no one else does. So Steph coming down and you know pulling up for that little flick shot from 35 feet, like, yeah, Clay sets up from like deep out there and shoots bombs. And like, yeah, like I guess like Nick Young is there to do some of that. But it doesn't quite look like Curry. Like it doesn't – the game isn't just changed the same way. And so as people like in the last season and like even in the 72 wins or 73 win season, uh, as there was a little bit of Warriors fatigue, like those highlights were still just like that, – that was the difference. Like you would just tune in and like watch Steph Curry like score 47 points in like 30-some minutes and do it in a way that like you just haven't seen before in the league. So, I mean – uh, like and he hasn't been that this year is the thing. Like coming back to like why we haven't really talked about them as much. Uh, he's looked a little disengaged. He's uh, you know hasn't looked quite right. It's still really impressive. Like defenses still have to be up on him because if you don't like even though he's only shooting thirty eight percent from three, uh, he commands all that attention, all that respect still. But uh, like there just haven't been the eruptions from Curry this uh, in the same way that we're used to. And that's usually what's driving like us talking about the or reminds us to talk about the Warriors. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing too that makes it a little bit more interesting is the idea that some of the things that they've struggled with this year, the the main one that a lot of the stat heads are kind of circling and, and noticing is that the death lineup hasn't played particularly well, uh, especially when you kind of compare them to the world beaters that they were a year or two ago. And that they've basically had a, a, a net negative this season. Obviously, they can't improve on that with Curry out. But their defense changes a lot when Curry's not there. Not that Curry's a huge liability, but just the versatility that you gain with having Livingston in there instead of Curry. Or even just putting Iguodala in there uh, instead of Curry. Just another ball handler. All of a sudden, when you put someone in there that's six six or six seven instead of a guy that's six three, and now you've got across the board guys that range from six seven to seven feet tall how are you supposed to try to score against that and so it's already a really really great defense and then you you take curry out and plug another guy that is a really good defender but four inches taller five inches taller than curry and it kind of gets them back to some of their defensive roots and i know i'm working on something for later this week about just how dominant they are defensively and how they're creating offense out of their defense because that's what they lose with curry they actually get better defensively, but they get something like 12 or 13 points worse per 100 plays without Curry there. And so there are gaps that they have to fill in, but they, they're so good. It's kind of like – it's basically kind of like cutting off um, an earthworm's tail. It's now, funny because when Durant was gone for like 20 games last year, they were like uh, – last season, there were people who – I think they started with that really bad stretch. They lost like – five of seven it was definitely their worst part part of the year and people were even like beginning to write them off saying you know maybe they aren't going to do it this year they aren't going to you know they're going to follow the spurs or something like that and then they just like quickly peeled off 14 wins in a row and won a championship but i think what they did and i think zach mentioned this in their stories they kind of like went back to you know the year before warriors which they had whereas i think you're right in that the durant warriors without curry is a different team well, I mean, the Durant Warriors also uh, maybe, maybe don't win that finals last year uh, because, like, Durant was so good at, like, shooting all those contested looks. When the game did slow down, the, you know, the Cavs did put the clamps on. Uh, but, like, during the regular season, yeah, it's been this way for the last four years at least where uh, they, they're they actually uh, averaging about, like, 16 points 
uh, every season uh, that the offense gets worse per 100 possessions when Steph Curry's off the floor, which is crazy. And I mean, part of it, is, a big part of it is like the system that they run with all those off-ball screens where Curry's setting screens and, you know, the, the help defender has to, you know, stick with him. So like a guy springing free. Um, but a lot of it is just like just the basic gravity of him on the on the floor of just the, the defense paying attention to him. Like Clay Thompson's uh, true shooting percentage dips down into the mid 50s when he's off the floor. Uh, Kevin Durant's uh, dips under 60. Uh, like the the basic efficiency of all these players that like they are all very efficient scorers uh, dips down into just very good or just like kind of good uh, when Steph is off the floor. And like that's been the case forever. Uh, one thing that like is interesting though, like so, aside from Steph, aside from you know all the injury stuff about the lineups coming in and out, is that uh, last year they were kind of thin, uh, like along the along the shooters, like they had only two guys uh, who were shooting over forty percent from three during the regular season, at least uh, among their you know high volume shooters. Everyone was out like that high to mid thirties. Uh, Draymond was like shooting thirty percent all year. He dipped in the twenties a bunch of times. A bunch of guys not making their shots this season. Uh, I mean. Part of it is uh, Durant is just shooting a little better, and he was already still he was still Kevin Durant last year. That was fine, but Draymond is hitting a few more threes. He's at like thirty three, thirty four percent, whatever. Um, Andre Iguodala was hitting a decent amount of his last season. He's like in the like whatever twenty some percent this year. Uh, so you would think that they were falling off, but they added Nick Young over the off season, uh, who's shooting like forty one percent from them. They have Omri Caspi, who's like shooting what sixty some percent. He's getting short minutes, but. Um, they they're restocked with shooters. They have Jordan Bell, who in the last few games you've seen, uh, has, he started last game and he had just one of the better games he's played all season. Uh, like in a scary way, this team, like even though it has a few more problems than we saw last season, the season before, like they're showing evidence that like they've restocked and they still have you know the core four or five players that uh, that they built around, which is which is scary. All right, well. Uh, they're obviously not going anywhere. I think they don't leave the state of California for the rest of this year. Um, a lot of their you know, upcoming games, which are mostly at home, look pretty easy. So, I mean, it pretty much looks like they're going to have a 12-game winning streak heading into that uh, Christmas game against the Cavs. Um, before our next segment on the former Oklahoma City Thunder players around the league who are making noise, first an ad from our sponsor. Don't be the guy who winds up parking 15 blocks from the arena. It's too cold out there right now for that, so take an Uber ride. You don't have to pay for parking or walk across the lot or spend time looking for a spot. And when the game's over, you get picked up right in front. No walking blocks back to the car. Request an Uber ride anytime with the Uber app. It's a safe and comfortable way to get where you need to be, like going to your company's holiday party. A lot of those going on. If you're late for work, take an Uber and work from the car, which you should not do while you're driving. Uber is a better way to get anywhere you have to be, and you'll even know the price before you book a trip and pay directly in the app. Install the Uber app today from the App Store or Google Play. New riders who use our code THELAB will get $5 off their first three rides. That code's THELAB, T-H-E-L-A-B, and you'll get $5 off your first three rides. Uber, the better way to get anywhere you have to be. New users only. Offer expires February 18th, 2018. Let's go on to our main topic today, which is Oklahoma City's well, it's really actually not Oklahoma City. It's their departed players who are making a big impact, um, at least in the early going here. If I would have told you before the season, Kyle, 
that you had to guess the first player in the Eastern Conference to win Player of the Week twice, how many guesses would it have taken before you got to Victor Oladipo? So not a ton, but like you know, we wouldn't be up near the top. Like he he was on that list of guys who like you could see like maybe like blowing up because uh, he's you know change of scenery, like new team. He's going to be running most of the offense. Uh, he was on my fantasy team of, on the <laughs> assumption that uh, he someone has to shoot the ball out there and they can't all be Bogdanovich. But uh, but yeah, like he he wouldn't be near the, like top five. I mean, it's <laughs> it's interesting too because like when the when the Paul George trade went down, I mean, it was like pretty wide consensus that it was a robbery. I mean, some people called it a coup. I saw the grade the Pacers got, you know, looking back on it now, and I don't really judge anyone for evaluating trades, you know, at the time because who knows? You know, people were giving the Pacers a D, saying you know they didn't walk away with any draft picks, they didn't really walk away with the franchise player um you know maybe like a kevin love type or someone else they could have gotten for paul george and that um look at and really for the thunder what it was was a kind of a salary dump um getting rid of oladipo's contract and uh is have we seen enough of oladipo to say we were all pretty much wrong about that one i i think most people i i tweeted the other day that i was wrong and and honestly my critique of the trade was exactly what you just said. Not so much that the players they got back were bad, because I think Oladipo's a good player. I wrote something really small. It was kind of a, a nugget in a larger column I did last year, but I wrote something kind of shaming Oklahoma City and to some extent Russ for not making better use of Oladipo. I also think Oladipo deserves some of that criticism too for not really taking more of a role. This guy handled the ball he was he started his career as a point guard because Orlando wanted to see whether he could really handle the ball and and run an offense and have the ball in his hands all the time and so it was kind of on everybody that he didn't do a little bit more but nobody saw him becoming a 25 point per game scorer nobody saw him out playing Paul George and Mello and Russell Westbrook to start this season nobody saw Indiana having a winning record and being in playoff position this far into the season and so my critique, again, was that they didn't get any picks. I I think it's fine to kind of gamble and to try to, to restart and jumpstart your team again. But to do that without picks out of something, and in particular, let's go back to that trade. I think a lot of people were critical of the fact that there were the reports that Kevin Pritchard didn't want to trade Paul George within the conference and that that was why he didn't want to trade with Cleveland or with Boston. And so he went outside the conference, but probably took a worse deal in doing it. And so that was the really big critique at the time. But even then, I don't think you can really critique it anymore, especially knowing what we know now and Oladipo playing this well. I mean, his numbers, he he will be in the all-star game at this rate. And again, he's statistically, no one else is even really close to him. Of those three guys I just mentioned, the Oklahoma City Stars. So here's my thing. Like, all that is true. Like, that's just undeniably true. But I, there's also really no way there you could have really seen this coming unless you just really believed in Victor Oladipo. I mean, you look at his stats, like, through the entire, like, the entire first four seasons of his career, every season to this point, his assist percentage went down. Every se- season to this point, his usage percentage went down, which is, like, not good for a guy that you want on the ball. Like... Every season, like, or not every season, like, he capped out at, uh, like, his shooting numbers, uh, just efficiency-wise, just had capped out, which is, like, not something that you want in, like, a second, third, fourth-year player. Like, usually you just, you know, figure a little bit out. Like, you just get a little more efficient in those years. And he didn't. Even as a low-usage guy last year, his efficiency, like, wasn't very good. It was below average. 
So, I mean, yes, uh, he was not well served, you know, playing, you know, just standing in the corner, just, you know, taking the ball when Russ, you know, didn't want any more of it. Uh, no, that wasn't the best use of his talents. But, I mean, even just giving a very generous reading. And, like, again, like, yeah, part of it's on him. But, like, also part of it's just, like, he's playing a lot better. <laughs> like, it's... He's, he's making... playing way above his head in some ways. I think, like you said, so Oklahoma City stuck the guy in the corner last year, which was my criticism of him, given that he can do stuff with the ball, given that he can occasionally go out and get you an ISO basket. Obviously, can do it more than occasionally now. But look at his numbers. I mean, he's still... There's still some regression to the mean to come with this guy. I mean, I looked at it before we hopped on. Six, 63% from the corner right now he's shooting from three. I mean, that's not a sustainable number. I mean, he was above 40% last year, but there's literally no way someone at that volume is going to shoot that well from one area of the court. Um, as a jump shooter, he's hitting, I think, better than 50% of his shots this year. So, he, I mean, some of that stuff is going to come down, but you – would gladly take that if you're Indiana, even if he comes down 10 or 15% in terms of his efficiency uh, from the 100 that he's at right now. I mean, that's still something that would have been a wild success compared to what we thought. There's literally no way that anybody expected any of this. I mean, there were a lot of people that felt like, to some extent, that maybe the trade for him, it was kind of the hometown kid because he went to IU. Um but, I mean, even Sabonis has been really good. You know, the change of scenery thing has to be looked at to some extent. I don't really believe in that a whole lot. But you do have to think about it a little bit more when you're talking about someone that's playing next to Russell Westbrook because he did dominate that offense last year in a way that we've never seen. And we obviously wrote about that a lot. But it's different when you're talking about young players that aren't going to really challenge a guy like Russell Westbrook to take the ball from him in an MVP season. Are there really uh, – you know, I, I'm trying to think of it. You know, he's – it's his fifth season in the league. Do you really see a player take this kind of, you know, assuming he regresses, you know, somewhat, obviously, because he's, you know, across the board, as you said, up in every statistic. Have you seen a player or does anyone come to mind who took that kind of leap um, and sort of altered his trajectory that late in his career? I mean, I know you have guys like Giannis who got better, and but, you know, it was all sort of visible from the beginning. So... Actually, it's funny that uh, one of the guys is Paul George, who like everyone right. knew was going like had a lot of talent in in him, like from the time he got in the league, and like it was expected that he was going to take a few big steps. But he was one of those guys, like Kawhi Leonard, like um, like just there's this whole crew of perimeter players now who don't just like max out their efficiency, like they become you know get a serviceable perimeter game, get a jump shot, whatever, but like they still like, kind of are what they are. Uh, a lot of guys now who come in raw and just become really polished perimeter guys. And Paul George did, I think, his fourth year. It might have been his fifth, but I think it was his fourth. Uh, it's weird that it's Oladipo's fifth. That's a little late for this. But there have been guys, like, recently that, uh, that like, yeah, take three, four years, but then, like, turn around and, like, yeah, they just turn it on. I'd put Jimmy Butler on that list, too. I, I think looking at his numbers, uh, and, I mean, the minute totals obviously change night and day, but – Less than three points per game as a rookie. Um, less than nine as a second-year guy. 13 is a third-year guy, but shot less than 40% to get there. And then as a, as a fourth-year player, was at 20 points per game, 46% from the field. And, and now as someone that we – a perennial all-star, someone that you know was part of a blockbuster trade and was the headliner of a blockbuster trade for a, a pretty big market team. And so, I mean, I think Kyle's on to something where – 
a lot of these guys kind of become defense defensive minded guys first. They figure that side of the ball out first, and, and they they kind of earn their keep defensively first, and then add the the offensive skills as they go, little by little. Again, Oladipo is a little different there just because he was given more opportunity and he was also drafted a lot higher than any of those guys. So I think there was more hope for him early on. What what did he go, number two in his draft? So there was more hope for him in the sense that they basically handed him the keys in Orlando and he just was never quite good enough to really live up to that. I I still kind of feel like Orlando is searching for that franchise player. Um, They've got to be kicking themselves because they traded him to go and get Ibaka and... They had Sabonis, the pick that became Sabonis, I think, as well, to go get a Baca. I mean, they, Orlando is the team that always just kind of kicks themselves in, in hindsight. That was a well, weird. That was a weird draft, though, if you remember, because that was you know people were thinking Noel was going to go one, and then it was Bennett, and then mm-hmm. it was Oladipo, and you know Otto Porter, and it was sort of a strange draft across. I, mean, I guess can we say a bad draft? But it, it was strange across the board. It wasn't a great one, uh, but I mean Orlando, like going back, like so it isn't a totally new phenomenon, and like. So part of this is years in the league and age. And so Oladipo like is also pretty young, pretty old for like his like whatever his class or whatever you want to call it. Uh so I was looking back of just like racking my brain of who else. Tracy McGrady had spent 3 years c- kind of, you know, anonymously in Toronto as a defensive stopper next to his cousin Vince, then goes down to Orlando and starts averaging like 25, 26 a game and like hits 32 at some point. Um so I mean like this has happened, but again with Oladipo, we had just kind of seen him do the same thing over and over, and he didn't seem to be getting any better. And then this year, just sh- suddenly he did. So looking at the other trade, because people are sort of linking these two trades now, uh, the Carmelo Anthony trade, I mean, I think, you know, same, maybe not to the same extent, but most people sort of walked away from that trade and said that the Thunder once again got the best of the Knicks um, by giving up Cantor and McDermott and a one draft pick, a second rounder, which I believe with Chicago so that's sort of a good second rounder um, I think because of the Knicks got the draft pick it wasn't considered maybe the the robbery of the Pacers deal but no one was like singing the Knicks praises over that deal uh, in terms of like trading a 33 year old future Hall of Famer and the kind of haul they got but I think like the Pacers they also had very little leverage um, and again I, I mean Tell me what you think of McDermott and Cantor and, and what's going on in New York and whether, you know, maybe the Knicks won that trade too. What do you think? So, I mean, this is the, to me, this is the difference of seeing guys in the context of a playoff team, of a team that is, you know, they were, they had like maybe second round max potential last season, but a team with some aspirations and like the Knicks who want to make the playoffs, they want to do something, but there's, there's just more room to breathe on that team, even though like there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, traditional talent on on the thunder last season but Cantor, you see is taking on like a bigger role with this team Cantor is like being loud and just you know trolling everyone on social media yeah but like he's also playing some defense like he's defensively keyed a bunch of runs that like got the knicks back into a bunch of games uh which is something like i never thought i would see while he's with the thunder while he's with the jazz uh but it's just guys like taking on a new role with a new team and like it looks kind of good on Cantor. McBuckets has you know made some shots. Uh, they look pretty good, but I mean, it's the context of a team that just needs people doing that. And on a better team, I'm not sure they would look quite so good. You know what I think part of it is with Cantor, and, and maybe it's just kind of uh, a guess on my part, but I think it helps him going from the star player being a guard and that person kind of controlling when you get the ball and when you touch the ball. 
versus the star player of the Knicks being another big, and, and not only a big, but someone that pulls defensive attention out to the perimeter with a lot of what he's doing. I think it kind of leaves Cantor with more opportunity that he's the only guy that can really step in and grab an offensive rebound for them. That also that he's dealing with less defensive attention on some level because instead of there being two bigs in the paint with him when he might get the ball or touch the ball, that it's just one or or sometimes zero. And so I kind of feel like he's forgotten a little bit more, whereas Russ, that team, as you wrote about last year, Kyle, was so bad in terms of shooting the lane was always clogged because they didn't have guys that could really step out and space stuff. And so I, when I watch Nick games, I just am amazed at how many offensive rebounds he grabs. I mean, he's always been a good offensive rebounder. That's kind of his calling card. And, you know, his offensive ability is his calling card. But even for him, sometimes I just watch him like, how the hell is nobody putting a body on this guy? But people are so preoccupied with a big that can step out and create his own shot. And so I think that, like you said, that team has changed so much. With, with McDermott, uh, he's had a lot of success finding little gaps and little spaces to cut. He's always been a pretty good uh, person at moving without the ball, dating back to his time at Creighton. But it, it's been interesting to watch him in an offense where there's still some – they're not really running full stop the triangle, but still like a lot of off-ball movement and stuff and watching guys kind of move without the ball. And he's kind of taken full advantage of that where guys fall asleep with all the ISO stuff that Porzingis is doing, and he just kind of catches a guy not paying attention. So this this dynamic, like I totally agree with that. And like th- to take it back to the the Thunder, uh, this dynamic is also something like you've seen with Sabonis this year, where because they had no one else down low who could you know stretch the floor at all, and Sabonis can like, kind of shoot from outside. He's shooting a very good percentage on very few shots this season from three, uh, but he has he's barely taken any. Whereas last season he was just always had to hang out on the wing. Uh, you know, like five feet outside of the three-point line or go stand in the corner. And, like, I mean, the boy's name is Sabonis. <laughs> like, you want him in the middle, like, you know, taking up space. He's he's a, he's a smart spatial player, but, like, just because of the needs of that team with Cantor and with Adams and, like, with Taj or whatever, like, those aren't guys who are going to space the floor out at all. And, like, he did an okay job. He shot, like, 30-some percent, whatever. But it wasn't, it wasn't great. Like, if he's going to be a floor-spacing big, you would have wanted him to do better with that. Um... But like that's not what like he was best serving him. But that's what just what the the roster dictated. Since we have a rare opportunity to talk about the Knicks and their future, I mean, I think we all agreed that you know losing Mallow's addition by subtraction. But really, what is this team going to do? I mean, it's obviously Porzingis's team now. But are you you can't really build around Dougie McBuckets and Cantor, um, or or can you? I don't know. I mean, it seems like they're destined for like you know a perennial seven eight seed type team if they keep on this trajectory and keep all those veterans um but then again you know we see this in new york teams in like all sports you can't really there's no patience there's no time and i think um perry's even said this to blow up the entire franchise so I, I'm, I'm interested to see like where you think this team goes next who who is it that says that there's no patience though i mean it's like well i mean it, maybe I, Personally, as a fan, you know, I would have patience for it, but I think it's the sort of reputation of the New York media and the back pages and, you know, seeing a team be the worst in the league and barely, you know, win a dozen games. I mean, let me just, like... The Nets can do it, for instance. Patience, though, like, Knicks fans sat through 
two, two and a half seasons of Donnie Walsh pulling out like the most, like, I think Donnie Walsh did some like good signings, whatever else, but that plan was insane. Let's lose for two seasons when we don't have draft picks to go along with the tanking process like Philly did. And Knicks fans got on board with that. Like, if, if you tell them there's a plan, like, I mean, maybe, maybe they're not too bright, but like, if you tell them there's a plan, like, they'll go along with the plan. There's patience there, I, I think. I, I think it would work. I mean, I also think maybe it just requires younger fans to understand it better but we've seen it happen in too many sports now philly being the latest example in this sport but also with the cubs and the astros and i mean you don't really need people to show it to you in football because there's an automatic payoff if you have the worst record there i mean it's very clear that that is a, a very quick way to get better and i kind of my only fear with the knicks right now they're actually very fun to watch uh, they're they're really garbage on the road. Uh, that's kind of their big problem right now. But they're fun to watch. But they they're gonna be too good. It looks like at this rate to really get a a franchise changing talent. Uh, they're gonna be right in the middle of the league at this rate. And so I mean I, I like Nilakina. He's very good defensively, especially for a rookie. Uh, he's still got to figure out some things offensively, but he plays well with Porzingis. You need another guy. And and the problem with Cantor that we were talking about before, he makes a lot of money. Uh, he makes a, a lot of money for a guy. It, it'd be different if we were talking about him on a, a rookie-scale contract, but he already makes a lot of money. And so you've got to find other people that don't. Um, Dotson is another guy that looks somewhat promising for them, a young player that looks somewhat promising for them. But they, they need to find other guys through the draft, and, and I think they'll do that. But it would help you to, to be higher in the draft as opposed to being – no one expected them to be this good after that mellow trade. I don't think people expected Porzingis to come in scoring 30 a night you know for the first month month and a half of the season so we'll see how good they are but you don't want to become stuck in that seven eight spot or nine spot for that matter i mean it's a little too good but like it's a it's also a good problem to have but it's also a thing where saying this and like it's it's true like the treadmill theory in the nba is is broadly true but it, it rules out the possibility to differentiate differentiate yourself through just being good at evaluation through being good at you know signing the right players, trading for the right players, picking up the right players off the waiver wire. And, like, this is kind of how Jerry West built the built the Grizzlies and, you know, went out and, like, helped with the – helped insofar as he helped with the, uh, with the Warriors and whatever. Like, there are – for as many examples as there are of teams just having to bottom out and, you know, just waiting around, there are also teams like the, the Hawks a few years ago where they won 60 games and looked like they have, had a legitimate shot to make a run. And maybe the like we'll see if it holds up, but maybe the Raptors this year of teams that you know you know max out around you know maybe the four seed, maybe the five seed, maybe the three seed on a good year, but then like one year comes around where like you get the right guy in a mid level deal, you get the right guy here and there, and your stars just have the right season, and you've got a shot and I mean that's something that you know comes along with just making good decisions and you know believing in like whatever and so I don't know the the Knicks have you know new management uh I think Clarence Gaines is still there, you know, you know, digging out gems out of, out of uh, out of Europe. Uh, so, I mean, they got a shot at that, even if they do, you know, kind of max out at that at that level. Let's leave things right there on the Knicks, and we're going to wrap up this episode with a segment we like to call "Small Sample." This week's small sample is about the Minnesota Timberwolves, who currently lead the league in wins decided by six points or fewer. Last season, the Wolves somehow blew twenty-two double-digit leads, which is amazing and more than any other team in the league, obviously. So 28 games in. What does this say about this new Wolves team? I mean, I know usually in us you know, statistically-minded folks, we don't 
look upon too much of these, you know, it's like one run victories in baseball, like the Texas Rangers when they won a ridiculous amount of one run games. They were obviously due for a regression. Um, but are you seeing anything different here with this Timberwolves team than you saw last season and their ability to close out games? I mean, Butler is there. Butler was one of the best closers in the league last year. Um, I, I, I went to countless Bulls games last year where he would kind of, him and Wade would basically take turns playing iso ball and he would just be in a rhythm and he'd win them a game or, or stop them from losing a game. And so I think it helps to have someone that's kind of used to that. Um, the, the Wolves struggled a lot last year with kind of who should get the ball between Carl Anthony Towns and Wiggins. But I, I have to say that I, I don't see this holding up. I don't think they're going to regress to, to last year. I don't think there's enough time left in the season for them to blow 22 double-digit leads. But um, but that said, I, I do think that this is a situation where the, you look at their net rating and it, it suggests that they're, they're not going to win at this rate. I think they're, they're almost like a minus 12 points per 100 possessions in the clutch. Uh, they're giving up 125 points per 100 plays in the clutch. And yet they have a nine and six record in the clutch, and so something there doesn't really hold up. They're either going to have to start playing way better to to kind of keep up that clip, or they're probably going to start losing some of these closer games. They, they've won a couple that were fluky. Uh, one of the first games of the season, they they beat Oklahoma City on a play where Wiggins hit a half court three at the buzzer, and so their their record is a little bit better than it probably should be in those scenarios. I, I think. They're probably going to come down to earth just a little bit because these numbers don't quite add up. Right. I mean, so this is to me like an interesting question of is it the the nerd theory maxim of like winning close games isn't really a skill, which is more true in some sports than others. And in basketball, I think like there there are very like clear concepts that go into the end game that like it almost becomes an entirely different sport, which is something that the league is trying to address, actually, um, with a bunch of rules changes. But um, like also like Chris was saying. Uh, they just like went into like weird shot selection stuff where they would go to towns a lot early in the game, build a lead, and then coming into the third quarter, uh, Wiggins would just take like all these crazy shots that Wig wasn't taking in the first half. And like, oh, it's like, why are we losing all these points in the in the third quarter? Oh, well, like, look at what we're doing. And so yeah, Butler does help with that. Um, and like he he's got the stature too, like not just because he's you know an All NBA player or whatever, because uh, he's he's very like obviously just not shooting as much as he, as he like, could or would otherwise, you know, getting those other guys involved a little bit more. And so that then when it's time for, you know, him to take the ball, like the way that Chris Paul would, or, you know, a lot of others, like he, he's allowed to do that. But uh, like also like Chris, like the, the worrying part of the, the net rating is the defense. And this is something that we thought that Butler was going to help patch up. And so last season I did, you know, the NBA haters ball at the end of the year and declared, you know, Andrew Wiggins statistically at least, uh, to be the worst uh, defender in the league uh, ever, I thought. W- weren't we uh, getting close to worst defender ever with that statistics last year? Insofar as like we have the tools to look at, like what we were looking at, like yeah, close, close on record. I mean, but the record only goes back a few seasons. But like he was, he was really in the bad. last three years. Um, he was, but it was bad because it was bad because uh, like he defended so many plays and he was asked to defend like a lot of like really like the best players in the league. Well, this season, like, we have a way that we can adjust for, like, who he's actually guarding, right? And, like, and actually, we have new tools where we can look at last season, too. And it turns out that, like, everyone who was yelling at us, being like, oh, he's guarding the best players, he has the toughest assignments, uh, actually, that makes him look worse um, if we add that into the adjustment. Uh, but, like, as far as this season goes, he's he's gotten a little better um, as far as, like, giving up, you know, valuable shots 
and then those valuable shots turning into incredibly valuable uh, plays, he's gotten better. He's now like just among the other bad defenders. He's in the pack, not like a huge outlier. But what is crazy is that Jimmy Butler, who's taken on a lot of those assignments, now looks, as according to the cameras, like our algorithms, just as bad as Andrew Wiggins was last season. So unless like this is something like crazy going on with like the algorithm itself, or the, the way the cameras are calibrated in Minnesota, which is, I think, unlikely, but uh, something's going on with that system where w- what they're asking of their uh, perimeter, you know, their frontline perimeter defenders uh, is like not putting them in you know position to succeed like on defense, and this is the Thibodeau defense that you know was supposed to be good, but like has kind of been outmoded by a bunch of like the offensive innovations over the last five six years. Yeah, I, I think there's a a couple things that are really worth noting. One, Jeff, the first thing you asked was what's different or what's really changed. The one thing you can't overlook here, and as I say this, it reminds me how ugly a season he's kind of had so far. Ricky Rubio's not there. And so when you look at their defense really struggling, uh, they obviously struggled with him there as well. But Rubio, for the most part, I think most people would say he's a better defender than Jeff Teague, um, especially at the point guard position. But Rubio is a huge liability offensively. Guys just back away from him because they know he can't shoot from outside of 10 feet. And so he's having a huge problem with that. Now watching Utah play – I already think Donovan Mitchell might be a more effective point guard option as a rookie than Rubio is, and, and partly because you can't just back away from the guy. And so that's part of it. When you look at their offense, it's been really effective in the clutch. But I, I, I do think this is going to be a problem for them if they get to the playoffs and they still defend this poorly. You figured Butler would help a little bit. They're still a bottom five defense. And, and Thibodeau is taking some heat for that. Our friend Kevin O'Connor at the ringer, uh, actually went as far as to say that he thought that Thibodeau should be fired and then kind of took it back immediately uh, and said, you know, it was kind of a hot take that slipped of his. Um, but, I mean, think about it. This is a team that hasn't made the playoffs in 13 years, and there are some people, um, well-regarded people, a lot of people from their fan base that are angry at the fact that, you know, Thibodeau is kind of back at his old habits now in terms of the way he's playing these guys, which I do think factors into how they play late in the game, the fact that they're tired and the fact that these guys don't have much left in the tank by the time the game ends. Um, and I remember when I was there for their media day that Thibodeau was kind of, not bragging, but he was asked about minute management because you remember he had Derek Rose, Zach Levine tore his ACL last year, and someone asked him, like, has your philosophy kind of come around on that? He was like, well, you know, there were 17 guys in the NBA last year that played 82 games, and after this year's free agency, now we have five of those 17 instead of three. And so he was, like, taking pride in the fact that they have more guys that can play an entire season. Not just an entire season, an entire game. An entire game. You don't think Taj Gibson's supposed to be playing 42 minutes a night? Like- Pretty much. So I, I, I just think there's some elements of this that as much as I love Thibodeau, um, I, I do think some of this kind of comes back to that, that you would think, like, at what point, how many times do you need to get hit in the head kind of to, to get it through your head to – to realize that you can play guys less than 40 minutes a night and still win. They've got a ton of talent. They're still doing relatively well, especially in front of a fan base that just wants to see them make the playoffs. They can take their foot off the pedal a little bit and probably do that comfortably. The the Western Conference has been really bad outside of those top four or five teams. They're going to be okay, but they need to be physically okay to get there. All right. Well, we'll stop there. Thank you guys for having me uh, guest host. I think I was more of a Ricky Rubio 
type than Neil's Chris Paul. Not, not as we'll give, you know. We'll give you I'm, I distribute. You know, I distribute shots. We'll, uh, we'll give you Rajon. I'll take that too. Year. I'll take that too. Um, that's it for this week's show. Neil will be back next week. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. We've received production assistance from our intern, Daniel Levitt. It's actually Daniel's last week with us. We are going to miss Daniel. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. We're on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe at iTunes.com backslash 538. And you can find us in the Listen tab on the ESPN app. Be sure to review and rate the show, which helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.